Welcome to Karen Commons, a biblically-minded podcast highlighting the people, conversations, and ethos of Karen University. When Christians think about sharing the gospel, many of us tend to think primarily in terms of making a presentation. Dr. Randy Newman, the Senior Fellow for Evangelism and Apologetics at the C.S. Lewis Institute, is convinced that we need to think much more about how to engage people in conversations. And for years, he's been teaching that asking questions is an effective way to accomplish. Dr. Newman is the author of Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did, recently released in its third edition. He joined Dr. Keith Plummer to talk about it. They discuss why asking questions and listening well are so important, some of the top questions non-Christians ask about Christians, why the new edition includes a new chapter on science and Christianity, the difference between evangelism and pre-evangelism, and more. If you'd like to grow more confident about talking to people about the good news of Jesus Christ, we think you'll find this encouraging and helpful. Let's listen into their conversation today. Today I have the delight of talking with my friend Randy Newman about what is one of my favorite books on apologetics and evangelism. Randy's the Senior Fellow for Apologetics and Evangelism at the C.S. Lewis Institute in the Washington, D.C. area. He served with Campus Crusade for Christ, now crew, for over 30 years, and has authored a number of books, including Bringing the Gospel Home, Witnessing the Family Members, Close Friends, and Others Who Know You Well, Engaging with Jewish People, Understanding Their World, Sharing Good News, Corner Conversations, Engaging Dialogues About God and Life, Unlikely Converts, Improbable Stories of Faith and What They Teach Us About Evangelism, and the book we're going to be talking about today, recently released by Kriegel in its third edition, Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did. Randy, welcome to the podcast, and congratulations on the new edition. Ah, thanks. Great to be with you. So good to see you again. You too. Well, this has something of a deja vu feel, because... About two years after the first edition was published, we talked about it in another internet venue, and um, that means that we are old. <laughs> well, it, okay, I don't see why you wanted to start there, but okay, fine, <laughs> I'll give you that. <laughs> That's right, though. We did. We talked about that book when it first came out. Yes. And, uh, God has really blessed that book. It's really been kind of fun to watch. Well, I am looking forward to hearing about the ways that God has used it. Before we go into the book, though, can you tell us just a little bit about your coming to faith and something about your spiritual journey, just so that people get an idea of who it is that is behind this book? Sure. Delighted to. Well, I I grew up in suburbs of New York City, out on Long Island, in a Jewish family. So my family didn't hear anything about Jesus for a very long time. Other than my my dad used his name in some pretty uh, unkind ways. So I took Judaism pretty seriously, I think more so than the rest of my family. And I was uh, searching, I think. Uh, I had my bar mitzvah when I was 13. I When I was about 16, I said on Yom Kippur, okay, I'm going to do everything you're supposed to do on the Day of Atonement, get my sins forgiven by God so I could be close to him. And it, it it just didn't work. It didn't connect me to God the way I had hoped it would. I remember walking home from synagogue, and I 
I realized I was wearing dress shoes because I was dressed up in a suit and I wore dress shoes. And I remember that in in my preparation for uh, bar mitzvah, I learned that on Yom Kippur, you're not supposed to wear dress shoes. That's not in the Bible, by the way. That's rabbinic. <laughs> and and I just thought, oh, that's why I didn't connect with God, because I wore the wrong shoes. And, oh, that's good. And then I thought, no, there's got to be a better way. And that began for me searching and looking and talking to Christian friends and eventually uh, reading the Gospel of Matthew and reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. And the Lord used those things to kind of pull it all together and show me that the the fulfillment of Judaism is the Messiah, Jesus. Hmm. And that was over 40 years ago, and I've been kind of delighting in how those two worlds really are inseparable or should be inseparable ever since. That was the quick version. I'm sure there's there's much more to it. Concerning the, the, the premise of the book, before we get to the, the latest edition, just the overall premise of the book, I know that those worlds of considering Jesus as a rabbi and how rabbis taught Mm-hmm. as well as your experience, your extensive experience in campus ministry and evangelism uh, came together. And tell us how that helped you formulate this idea of questioning evangelism. Yeah. Well, it really started out of a great deal of frustration. Uh, I was on staff with Campus Crusade, as you mentioned, and uh, my training in evangelism was that I, as the evangelist, would do the vast majority of the talking, that I would make a presentation. And on the campuses where I was assigned, East Coast, big city campuses, very secular, lots of Jewish students, lots of Catholic students, lots of skepticism, the presentation approach just didn't work. And you know, we, we just didn't, we didn't even see any decent conversations, let alone conversions and decisions. Hmm. So I I just started experimenting because I had to, and I just tried to make it more of a dialogue, more more of my asking more questions than making statements and drawing people out. It started from, I mean, that's my Jewish culture, and I did a lot of training in Jewish evangelism. I told people you should really ask a lot of questions when you're talking to Jewish people. And people started saying to me, you know, that's true, not just with Jewish people. And I went, oh, I, I don't think I realized that. So so I just started experimenting when we were in Baltimore at Towson State, where uh, at, at first, again, it was just we just didn't see any fruit. Um, but then with this method of just asking a lot more questions, making it more of a two way conversation instead of a one way presentation, just had much better results. I mean, I'm not saying revival broke out or we saw, you know, millions, but but it was just a much better engagement with people. And when I started teaching on that, quite a few people said, you ought to write this down. This, 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 mm-hmm. These are some good ideas. And so the book flowed out of that. Well, you've, you've answered some of this already, but could you go into a little bit more detail in, as to what are some of the benefits that you see in it? this approach and making more use of questions and engaging people in spiritual subjects? Well, I'm going to answer your question with a question. (laughs) (laughs) I would expect nothing less. So what happens in your mind when I ask you a question? Now, you don't have to answer. I'm posing this question also to your listeners. What happens when someone asks you a question? 
Well, doesn't your mind start formulating an answer or start exploring and asking questions? In other words, doesn't hearing a question engage you in the answering process? And and that's what a question does. And that's what Jesus did so, so masterfully. I mean, when people ask him a question, so very often he responded in a way that you wouldn't expect, in a way that wasn't a direct answer. Now, now quite often he did eventually give them an answer, but not right away. And most often, I think, his answer to a question was a question like, um, is it okay for us to heal on the Sabbath? Well, if you had an animal that fell into a ditch, wouldn't you pull it out? Or um, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Let me see a coin. Whose face is on the coin? And you see what happens is people start going, oh, I, I actually know the answer to this already. Or I know something that helps me get involved in the answering process. So instead of it being someone asking a question and then sort of watching you at arm's length try to answer, it engages them in the process and moves them from unbelief to belief or from doubt to, gee, maybe I should consider this. So it's just it's just a more engaging way of learning. It's funny we we know this in the education world. You know, when if you, if you take classes in education, you know, here's how you ask students questions, mm-hmm. and we know it in the counseling world. And I think uh, I'm sure that more and more people in the business world are learning this is how you manage people, salespeople. You you do more asking of questions than making sales pitches. So I'm just trying to say, I wonder how this works itself out in evangelism. I tell students in apologetics something that Blaise Pascal said about people being more willing or inclined to believe something that they feel that they have discovered Mm. than that they are merely told. Uh And it, it sounds like what you're describing is that by asking questions, we're inviting people to enter into discovery not simply telling them something. Absolutely, yes. I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I love that distinction of discovering versus just hearing or, or mm-hmm. being told. We do need to be careful. I, I don't want to promote this idea because, hey, this is more effective and you'll get more converts. Mm-hmm. I, I really think it's more of we want to engage with whole persons, with with people because they're made in the image of God, and we want to love them, and we want to share the best news with them, not to defeat them or to, you know, defeat their arguments, but to win them to the Savior. Mm. Well, before we talk about some of the revisions and updates of the, the third edition, the, the book is almost 20 years old now, And I was curious as to what is among some of the most encouraging feedback that you have gotten from people as they have put this into practice? Yeah. Oh, thanks for that. The most encouraging feedback, and I've heard this a fair amount of times, uh, people would say, I read your book and I feel like, oh, I can do that. Mm. I can ask questions for a whole lot of people evangelism is really intimidating. Yes. I don't know if I could say those things. I don't, I don't, what happens if people ask me questions that I don't know the answers to, I'm just so afraid of rejection or, I mean, I mean, there's so much working against it. Mm -hmm. What people have said to me about your book is 
you know, the idea about asking questions and being a good listener, I think I can do that. I'm going to try that. And and some people even come back of, hey, I've been, I've been trying to talk to whoever, my uncle, my neighbor, my brother for, for decades, and nothing has gotten through. And uh, the other day, I tried asking him some questions, and we had one of the best conversations we've ever had. Like, oh. hey, yeah, yeah, here we go. <laughs> Um, so, so it, it, it's been very encouraging along those lines. I, I still think evangelism is difficult and, uh, I mean, I, I write books about it and I'm still intimidated by it. So, uh, <laughs> well, I I've heard you say on many occasions that you don't think that you have the gift of evangelism. Mm. Is that correct? I have said that, um, I've, I've been <laughs> challenged by people. So I, I now I, I kind of put it in a different way. I um I, I do think God has called me as an evangelist, but in mm-hmm. the sense of the kind of evangelist in Ephesians 4 of for the purpose of equipping the saints. Mm-hmm. So uh the kind of evangelist that we usually think of of the Billy Graham or the Bill Bright, I don't think that's what God has called me to. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I had a very good friend really challenging me and say, you know, evangelism isn't listed as a spiritual gift in any of the mm. testament it's it's listed as a as an office or a calling in ephesians 4 mm-hmm. so, so i'm not the kind of evangelist who just can't not evangelize and <laughs> we, i heard i've heard a lot of speakers say that you know i, I cannot imagine not evangelizing and i always think they're going oh no i i can imagine <laughs> very cl- vividly um and you know, I always hear I hear a lot of stories of people like every time I get in an airplane, I talk to the person next to me about Jesus. And I think, um, oh, and every time I get in an airplane, I put on my noise canceling headphones. <laughs> I love those things. They're, they're so <laughs> so I'm not that kind of evangelist, but I do think God has called me to equip the saints that way. And by the way, I think my as a fellow struggler. I think that that has been helpful for a lot of people because I because I don't find it to be easy or natural or normal or that kind of thing. Yeah, most definitely. The times that I have read you and heard you confess to, as you just did, the the sense of intimidation that you still feel, the reticence that you have, that that is encouraging because it it could very well be that someone says, "Oh, this guy wrote this book on this. This just comes so naturally to him." And um, he doesn't know what it's like to be me. But yeah, I have appreciated the fact that you have let people into, oh, this isn't this isn't without some reservation or difficulty for me. Yeah. I hope this isn't stating it too strongly. I, I think there really was a breakthrough for me. I would say for the first at least 10 years on staff with Crew, Campus Crusade, I just kept thinking as I as I would hear Bill Bright, the founder of the organization, and other people up front, I, I kept thinking, you know, at some point, someday, this is going to be easy for me. Mm-hmm. And it never did. It just never got easy. And then there was this, this moment. And I, I, I really do think it was when I was at Towson in, in Baltimore, which was a really difficult campus, by the way. At one point it was, wait a minute, maybe, maybe this is never going to be easy for me. Can God use me anyway? Maybe this is never going to be comfortable. Maybe, here's this is a horrible thought. Maybe I'm lifting up comfort as too mm. high of a goal or too high of an idol. Mm. Uh, maybe, maybe God can use me as a very uncomfortable, struggling evangelist. 
And mm-hmm. for me, it was, oh, yeah. Then I started seeing verses that I had read in the Bible, like Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, where he says, I was with you with much fear and trembling. Like, mm-hmm. okay, that's my kind of guy. <laughs> All right. And remember, I think it's in Acts 18, he was so anxious about going into Corinth, this really, really immoral and difficult city. And it says that that angels had to come and comfort and strengthen him. I thought, mm. okay, all right, there we go. All right. So the nervous, anxious, struggling evangelist, God can use that because, because the power is in the message and the power of God's word and his truth, not mm. the boldness or the comfort of the messenger. Yeah. There's great uh, relief in that. Mm-hmm. Well, third edition, almost 20 years old. What's new about this and why? Well, you know, I had this horrifying moment. I was I was using the book as a textbook in a seminary class that I was teaching. And one of the students was a campus minister, a, a woman who said... Uh, Dr. Newman, I I really like your book. I'm not so sure I can use it with too many of my students. You have a lot of illustrations in there related to September 11th, 2001, and none of my students were alive then. I went, ooh. And I had to go back and read it. I I wrote it assuming people just knew all about that day and and knew the, the horror and the pain of that day which was accurate for probably the first 10 years after the book came out. But now it's, you know, ancient history, like World War II. So that was the spark that said, you know what, I think uh, this might be worth revising. And the publisher liked that idea a lot. So mm-hmm. so a whole lot was just updating some illustrations and okay. you know, some more recent things. There are two things that were pretty substantial changes. Um, one was... The chapter on homosexuality needed to be brought up to the current time when that has become so much bigger of an issue. It's the first issue that it's the initial roadblock that stops people from even thinking about this. So the teaching of the Bible hasn't changed at all. But the way I wrote that chapter needed to be updated in light of current challenges. Mm -hmm. You you break it down into three parts. The first part is dealing with why ask questions, which we somewhat discussed. And now we're kind of dealing with the second part, where you have a very helpful section with a number of chapters looking at what are the questions that people are asking about Christianity and Christians, one of them being why are Christians so homophobic and some other questions such as uh, what's so good about marriage, uh, why are Christians so intolerant? Just helping us to be mindful of where people's thought lies with respect to Christianity. And then the third part of the book, uh, why aren't questions and answers enough, which I do want to get to. But since we're still in that middle portion, I know one of the things that you added in that section was a new chapter about science. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Tell us a bit about um, why you did that. Yeah. Well, first, let me back up and say, when I teach, I want Christians to think that we usually only think in two categories or two phases. One is, what's the question people are asking? And Mm -hmm. then secondly, what's the answer? Mm -hmm. So the first is, okay, what's the question? 
And that includes being a really good listener and finding out, okay, now why is the person asking this particular question? And and are they asking it with an intellectual curiosity? Or are they asking it with an emotional pain? Or, you know, like, what are they really asking? And then secondly, okay, what does the Bible say as the answer or answers? But I want to add, and those are absolutely crucial, but there also is, okay, but now what do I say? How do I say it? How do... How do I take the answer that's in the Bible and deliver it for to someone that doesn't just dump truck a whole load of facts on them? And so mm-hmm. that's where I think dialogue and conversation can be better. So that was that's this backdrop. The, the chapter on science, well, again, as as we're looking around and listening, what are what are people asking or or what are people's objections to the gospel? Why are people either rejecting the gospel or or rejecting even the notion of even thinking about it. I mean, I just think there's a whole lot of people who, no, I'm not going to consider your stupid beliefs for a second. You're no, I, I they don't even enter the conversation. So there's there's work we need to do just to even begin the conversation. And I just started hearing and finding and seeing more and more people say, what is it that you Christians have against science? Why are you so anti-science? And I don't know if you noticed this, if you heard about this, but there was a pandemic. Uh, oh, that's right. We're still in it, sort of, kind of. Yeah. Um, so the pandemic just sort of raised a whole lot of questions to the surface. And the assumption by a lot of non-Christians, whether this is fair or not, is another whole topic. But the assumption is, well, Christians have made a, a bad situation worse by not getting vaccinated and by calling into question what scientists have said. And I don't I don't try to resolve those questions in the chapter, but I do want to look at science of how how should Christians think about science? And the big point I'm trying to make in that chapter is we Christians, we we should be very positive about science. Not scientism and not the way some people believe in science as, as like a religion, and they really do, but but science in its best practice is the exploration and the study of the world that God has created with a tremendous amount of order and design and beauty. Uh, it's a study of how human beings are created and how we work best and what brings the best amount of flourishing to us. So we should be very, very positive about science, not not uncritically, but much more positive rather than dismissive. And I've just heard a lot of very dismissive things said about science, and I think that's a mistake. Yeah. You say at one point, um, Christians should love science and that science should lead us to worship. Mm. Could you expound on that a, a bit? Yeah. Well, you know, for quite a few years in uh, when I was with Campus Crusade, I was with a branch of crew that worked with university professors. And what we found, and I say we, there was a whole team of us of close to 100 of us who worked on a whole bunch of different campuses, the majority of Christian professors came from the sciences, not from the humanities and the social sciences. Now, there were were plenty in that world too, but pretty much all of us who had some sort of weekly gathering of professors 
who were also Christians, said more than half of the people who attended those meetings were in the fields of physics and chemistry and astronomy and not in psychology and sociology. Again, not not it wasn't 100% versus 0%, but and it was because these men and women saw well, first of all, they started with an assumption that you could study the world and get decent answers. Well, that assumes a certain level of order and logic and reason which pointed them to a God who created the world in a way that we could study it and find answers and gave us the kinds of brains that could discover these things or or study them. I've heard it from so many Christians who are in the field of science. The more they discover and learn, the more it leads them to doxology and praise. Mm -hmm. Just recently, I heard it from a guy in the world of astrophysics who studies planets. And Mm -hmm. he's just like a little kid because in our, just in the last five years, there have been such advances in technology of telescopes, of satellites, that they're learning things that that people in his field have wondered about for a hundred years. And, and it's just so exciting. And it points to design and order and beauty. There are scenes that they're seeing in outer space that it, it's taken us 10 years to get telescopes there so that we could see it. And it's absolutely beautiful in both the visual way and the cognitive intellectual way and you think why is there such beauty that far out there it must be because god is out there and he likes it there and he likes the same kind of invisible beauty in the depths of the oceans so um and then i I heard this almost the exact same kind of thing of how exciting it is to be doing research today from a neurobiologist who studies the brain and there, there are things that that we're learning today that are just just so rich and beautiful and and point in the exact opposite direction of well we're just random chance thrown together molecules that just so happen to by the luck of our lucky stars bring about a brain that's so complex. Yeah. Uh, I mean. Yeah, I guess that could be an answer. It seems far more reasonable to believe that there's an intelligent God who said, I'm going to make people in my image, and that's different than how I make animals, and they're going to have a brain that's just wonderful to study for an entire lifetime. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking how frustrating it is, and this is probably on my mind um, most recently, because today... I showed an apologetics class some clips of um, Richard Dawkins and him talking about what faith is, you know, mm. believing without evidence and so forth. And one of his big objections is that religious belief offers explanations that aren't really explanations and that it somehow shuts down the curiosity that would give rise to exploration. When in actuality, and you you touch upon this in the the chapter, it was the conviction that that the natural world was the product of a mind that led to the expectation that while there couldn't be exhaustive understanding of it, 
there was some intelligibility that could be discovered. Yeah. So far from being a science stopper, the the conviction that creation is the result of intelligence is what motivates with the expectancy there is something that we can understand about this. Yeah, right. You know, I'm I'm going to butcher the quote, but there's this story about a, a student of C.S. Lewis's who, after graduating from Oxford, was sending letters back and forth to Lewis about his faith and his growth. And at one point, the student wrote to Lewis and said, I'm, be- I'm beginning to lose my faith in reason. Mm. Doubt whether human reason is adequate. And Lewis wrote back a very short note of, I'm very busy. I don't have time to respond at length, but I do wonder why you're using reason so much to explain to me about your lack of trust in reason. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, you know, it's uh, here. I, I'm beginning to doubt human reason. And let me give you my reasons why. Wait yes. a minute. Hold it. Talk about something in there. But Richard Dawkins is a challenge because he's he's just so forceful and strong. And um, uh, he's very convincing, I'm sorry to say. Um, yes. but, but there's there's gaps in his logic all over the place, but it's almost impossible to get through to him. I think we can get through to some of his followers. Mm-hmm. Well, you say in that chapter that you are not looking to give someone all the artillery that they would need to engage someone maybe like in an academic scientific environment and so forth, but you are trying to give people a strategy for science faith conversations. I know that you can't go into great depth with uh, all of the elements of that strategy, but could you just identify some of the things that you think it is important for a Christian who is speaking to a non-Christian about some of these things to, to have in mind? Yeah. So a couple of thoughts or strategies. One is, I I do think it's important for us to try to be as positive as we can be about science. Because, again, the the prevailing assumption, I think, by a lot of Christians is that we're very Mm anti-science. And and tragically, I think, there's good reason why they have that assumption. Because I think a lot of Christians have said some very dismissive or demeaning things. And... Uh, there, there's something terribly arrogant about saying that these brilliant scientists who have PhDs are all wrong about a topic that the person who's speaking hasn't studied on that level. So, so I think we try need to be positive. I also think we need to try to be respectful of the person that we're talking to and of about the, the nature of this world that God has created. There's just so much wonder and amazement the heavens declare the glory of God. That's that's a verse packed with implications. So we, we should have a sort of a an attitude of awe and reverence rather than dismissiveness and I don't know what the right word is, snarkiness or something. Mm-hmm. Then I think there's somewhere in the process of this conversation, we want to have a call to humility, both on our part and on their part. And this is tricky, but Good scientists admit what they don't know. And good science acknowledges, well, here's what we're discovering. Here's what we're finding. And it's really helpful. But here are the questions that we still have yet to explore. 
And that's the standard format of every academic journal article that you publish. Here's a here's an experiment that we ran. Here's what we discovered. Well, here's our methodology. Here's what we discovered. Here's what we learned. And here's what's still left for further study, always. So there, there needs to be a humility. And, and even in an examination of, you know, there were some things that scientists said a while ago. Uh, they they were really strongly convinced of it, and now they look back at it and they go, "Oh, hmm, maybe maybe performing lobotomies on people really wasn't such a good idea." But I mean, at one point that was sort of standard. I mean, right. there was one point where doctors put leeches on you and drained blood out of you to try to heal diseases. And, you know, now we look back and it's like that. I, I can't even find the words. So 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 it just needs to be a, a humility. Um, again, re- uh, telling about this astronomy professor that I have gotten to know, he was part of the team of people that sent this exploratory probe to Pluto. Mm. Just so excited about it. It, t- it took 10 years to get that thing there. And then finally to get, you know, they started getting all sorts of feedback and photos and research and things coming back to them. And what he said was, I mean, this, this is like the highlight of his life and the highlight of of 50 other NASA astronomers. And what he said was, uh, there were so many things that we were learning and discovering, but he said there were also so many surprises. We were surprised by things that we were learning. Like, in other words, we expected this, but we got that. Like, oh, so so we should try to find a, a kind of humility, again, for both us and for them, which... I hope brings the whole conversation onto a level playing field of two people who are being respectful of each other and respectful of the subject matter. Mm-hmm. In the third part of the book, why aren't questions and answers enough? You have a chapter that is on silence. And the question that uh, you pose in that chapter is, when is it time to shut up? <laughs> <laughs> and which for a book on evangelism is, is uh, I don't know if I've ever come across that. But, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping none of your listeners are thinking that very thought about us right now. <laughs> <laughs> when When is it time to shut up? What are you getting at there? When is it time how do we know when silence is the most appropriate response? Mm, boy, wouldn't it be great if we had an app? Yes. It would be like an evangelistic Geiger counter. That's and right. You just, you just, you, you hold it underneath the table. So, you, you, you know, personally, you <laughs> see it, but it tells you, you know, here's a question to ask. And now it's time to let them talk. And, but I, I, I haven't developed that app yet. So, um, well, uh, let me just back up again. That third section was, I felt it was important to include something in the book of not just, again, it's like that third part of the process. It's not just what's the question and what's the answer, but how do we deliver the answer? And and listening and uh, have a chapter on compassion, have a chapter on anger, about how to handle our own anger or how to handle when they get angry. I mean, these are sort of emotional dynamics of the process that don't often get addressed in a book on evangelism. So that's why I wanted to include it. And again, how to develop to be a good listener. I think it's a lifelong skill. I'm not so sure too many people ever master it, but we want to keep improving and asking and listening and 
learning how to recognize what people are saying, both from the words they say, but also their facial expression and tone of voice. And then I tried to weave in a number of insights from the book of Proverbs that tell us a lot about, you know, sometimes you're talking to a fool, Mm. and it's best not to answer a fool. Or sometimes you're behaving like a fool, and it's time for you to shut up and examine your own heart. Um, but but sometimes it's recognizing that, okay, no matter how good of an answer I might give, it's not going to get through because the mm-hmm. person isn't really open or listening. And it, it it's learning a lot of human dynamics. There were times that Jesus didn't answer people's questions. Mm-hmm. And it, he realized that they were just challenging him or they were attacking him. And we need to not be so naive as to think that all we need is just to deliver an answer and it's always going to get through. There there are times to say to people things like, was that a real question? Do you, do you really want to talk about that? Or I don't get the idea that this is going to be a good conversation. I, I just feel like you're attacking me. Is that is that what's going on? Am I misreading it? That was a difficult chapter to write, by the way, because I've been guilty of so much. I've recently replayed experiences in my life, and I thought, oh, I won that argument, and I lost that person. Hmm. How painful. So we need to include those emotional components of things like listening and compassion as part of the process. Yeah, those are very helpful sections of the book. One thing that I wondered is, since a lot of interaction between Christians and non-Christians is taking place online, Mm. are there any suggestions or tips uh, you'd offer as to how we can better use social media Mm. um, applying some of the things that questioning evangelism is about? Mm. Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Is is this now a second podcast we're going to do? No, I, I think that that's a whole other book, and I'm not so sure I'm the person to write that book because I, I I don't do a whole ton in the world of social media. So, mm-hmm. but yes, if all of the things that we've been talking about apply to interpersonal face to face conversation, then they apply tenfold. Mm-hmm. The nature of most social media is you're not seeing the person you're talking to. You're you're not watching their facial expression. It's just, it's not really two-way communication, uh, which is tremendously limited. It's I lob something out there and then somebody lobs something back at me, but it's not not really a dialogue. It's Mm -hmm. sequence of monologues. So there's something really, really profound and beautiful about real interpersonal face-to-face conversation. It's it's a beautiful thing. So we just need to start with the recognition that, okay, tweeting or posting things on Facebook or whatever, that is a, a, a very limited form of communication. I'm not saying yes. we shouldn't do it, but we shouldn't expect it to do all that real face-to-face communication does, which by the way, has its own set of challenges. I'm sure the beginning point is, oh, it's it's best to say less. It's best to try to tone down as much emotion as possible to avoid loaded terms and name calling. Mm-hmm. There's some really great wisdom about delaying before you hit that send button or post or whatever. Oh, yes. Uh, 
there's some great wisdom of have somebody else look at it before you send it. Someone who knows you well and knows what you're trying to do, who can say to you, oh, no, 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 no. highlight and delete. Uh, so I'm sure it can be used well, but it is it is loaded with all sorts of dangers. Yeah. And if if all of those warnings in the book of Proverbs about the power of the tongue and what James says in James 3 about the power of the tongue applies to our speech, it just seems, well, we need to say, okay, and how does that apply to things that I send out through a keyboard? I can imagine someone maybe just being introduced to some of the things that you're doing in the book and thinking, well, all this question asking is is good and listening and so forth, but we got to get to the gospel. We, you know, we have to get to the message. And for someone who's thinking along those lines, I, I wanted to share something and ask you to elaborate on it. Towards the end of the book, in the, I believe it's in the epilogue, you say at some point we need to shift from our pre-evangelistic conversations, plausibility building questions, and common ground explorations to posing the question. Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? The stakes are too high for us to never make this decisive turn. We must cross the pain line and ask people to respond. For most of us, this will never feel comfortable, but comfort should never be our highest priority. We may need to repent of our worship of the idols of ease, others' acceptance, hassle-free living, and not rocking the boat. Then we can urge people to seriously consider the offer God has made to them one of forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's family, and eternal life. Talk, if you will, about that, because the, the purpose of the questioning is to get people to think about the gospel and about some of the problems in their own unbelieving perspectives. But I was so glad that you included this in terms of the, the purpose of the pre-evangelism is ideally to at some point get to the evangelism, which is calling people to respond. Would you say whatever you would like about that? Well, and it starts with clear definitions of what is pre-evangelism and what is evangelism. And mm -hmm. I, hope I, I hope I spell that out. So evangelism is the verbal proclaiming of the gospel message. And we need to have very, very clear boundaries of what that is. So it's telling someone, either speaking it or writing it, saying, here's who God is, here's who we are, here's who Jesus is, and you need to respond. God sent his son to atone for the sins of sinful people, and if they put their trust in him, they can be saved. And we, we need to formulate clear ways of articulating that precise message, mm -hmm. not blur the lines around it. That's evangelism. Pre-evangelism is all sorts of conversations that we can have, questions we can ask, articles we can ask people to read, uh, sharing our testimony. There's a lot in there, but it's important to remember that's pre-evangelism. And so there comes a point, like I'm trying to say is, okay, We've done a fair amount of this pre-evangelistic stuff. I hope I've helped you move from, no, I'm not even going to consider this to, gee, I really should think about it. Okay, well, let me tell you what it is that I believe. And at that point, we do shift from a conversation to a presentation. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, so for the person who says, 
well, we have to get to the gospel. I agree. But I don't want to negate the importance of pre-evangelism. And by the way, let's let's think about Jesus had this conversation with this woman at the well in John chapter 4 about water and mm-hmm. thirst and about her failed five marriages and the immoral life she was living. That was a long conversation before he got around to saying about who he was, I am the mm-hmm. Messiah. So I think there are a number of biblical examples in the New Testament of pre-evangelism. I think that's mm-hmm. a big chunk of what Paul was doing on Mars Hill in Acts 17. So it's just remembering the distinctions and remembering the, the part of the word pre. Right. We, are, we are trying to get there. Sure. Well, we're winding down to a close, but before we did, I wanted to hear a little bit about your work with the C.S. Lewis Institute. You're a senior fellow with the the Institute. Let listeners know what's your role in it and so forth. Ah, commercial time. Good. I like it. (laughs) Well, the C.S. Lewis Institute is a discipleship ministry. We're trying to help people think deeply about their faith similarly to the way C.S. Lewis thought deeply about everything through the Christian lens. And we're trying to produce materials, articles, videos, audios, and all sorts of things to help people grow in depth in their spiritual walks. So a big chunk of what we do is a year-long discipleship program, um, but we have a whole lot of other things. And I do some teaching and some writing. I also host a podcast for us. We call it Questions That Matter that explores how can we live our faith more deeply, more Mm -hmm. meaningfully, more thoroughly. So that's a a brief commercial. We do have a good website, cslewisinstitute.org. It's a whole lot of letters to type, but we have a ton of resources there. So that's that's who we are, and I'm I'm thrilled to be part of it. It's it's really fun for me. I really love C.S. Lewis a lot, so I get to quote him a lot. But we're oh, not yes. we're not we're not about C.S. Lewis. We're not we're not trying to make more fans of C.S. Lewis or promote him as much as promote the way Lewis thought about everything through the gospel lens. Yes. Uh, so that's that's who we are. Thanks. Well. I subscribe to the Questions That Matter podcast, and I'm always excited when I get notification that there is a new episode, and I appreciate what you're doing there. And I didn't make mention, but since we're talking about Lewis, another one of your books is Mere Evangelism, where you look at what we can learn about engaging unbelievers evangelistically from the the thought and the writing of of Lewis. Yeah. I, I think Lewis was just a, a, such a genius about this topic of pre-evangelism, and especially mm-hmm. the way he did that in those radio broadcasts that eventually became the book Mere Christianity. I mean, he mm-hmm. just started so much further back and moved gradually that I thought, we need to study not just what he said, but how he said it, how he engaged people's imaginations. He He did things in evangelism that still to this day we still don't do anywhere near as much as we should like yes. in people's imagination and move gradually slowly so i was thrilled when the good book company said why don't you write a book on this i thought mm-hmm. i get to write a book about cs lewis how fun is that so <laughs> well i like to extend an open invitation for you to come back 
with every successive revised edition of Christian <laughs> Evangelism. I, I am very excited. I anticipate that there will be more. I really, really, I mean, this is a book that has impacted me both personally in terms of my own life and engaging with people, but also my teaching. There isn't an apologetics semester that goes by that students do not hear about questioning evangelism in some form or another. So I am really grateful for you and your work in this and really, really thankful for the time that you took to talk with us about questioning evangelism, engaging people's hearts the way Jesus did today. Well, thank you. This has been a great privilege for me.